young authors in the late 80s in a small seminar in Costa Mesa. I have autographed books and cassettes, and they talked about this great dream that one day they would like to have a New York's bestseller. And I was so surprised when I saw the books rolling out. I said, they made their goal. God bless them. They tried so hard, worked so hard. They talked about having imagination and keeping your goal in front of you. As a matter of fact, one guy, he said he pasted it on his bedroom ceiling. When he woke up and when he went to sleep, he would see his goal in front of him. And then he said he would keep three by five cards and flip through them all through the day. And those were his goals. And he would say, they would say, I am easily and happily going to the Bahamas. I am easily and happily having a New York bestseller book. I am easily and happily going to New York. I am easily and happily learning how to be entertaining. Things like that. And he said, the Bahamas one, he got a call about a year later. And he says, they said, sir, me and my husband, we paid for this trip and we can't go. Will you and your wife like to go to the Bahamas? He's been saying that little card for a year. Sure enough, they went to the Bahamas. I am easily and happily enjoying my reading to you guys. Our next story is called A New Day for Dorothy. Page 5. As the lady talked, I tried to concentrate on the beautiful room around us instead of on her words, for she was telling me about Dorothy. Her eight-year-old daughter, the middle one of her five children, a mentally retarded child. She never spoke in a single word, the mother repeated. The doctors say it's hopeless. We took her up to Boston last year and... I drifted away and I fixed my thoughts on the green damask draperies framing tall windows that looked out on Park Avenue. How handsome the whole room was with its crystal chandeliers its con concert grand piano, its fresh flowers everywhere. What a lovely woman the mother was, an opera singer whose name I had known even before her later letter came asking me if I would consider a job with Dorothy. Yes, a lovely woman, and especially her love for this little girl, whom all the experts said she would be put away. The love was the thing of, to concentrate on. And so while pretending to listen, I closed my ears to the result of reflexes, tests, and encephalograms. In my years of working with retarded children, I had discovered that my attention must not go to the lacks, but to the special strengths of such children. There was strength in each one of them. I was sure I believed that a little of God lives in every one of us and that to bring out is the only job of any teacher. Dorothy and I met the next weekend. With me, it was love at first sight. This beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed child, surely a very lovely person, lived in such a form. But her part, Dorothy, only stared at me 
with inscrutable eyes. It's one of her quiet days, thank heaven, her mother said. On her wild ones, there's no controlling her. My mind considered those wild days. I liked the sound of them. They told me there was a person here trapped in whatever chemical or physical prison, but an individual struggling to be seven to be seen and recognized. I told her mother I would try the job for a month. It was a hard one from the beginning. In that afternoons, I would take Dorothy to a special class for retarded children. She just sat in the chair, staring straight ahead, making no effort to join in the activities. She's unreachable, her teacher told me. I don't know why they keep sending her. her, her. I gazed around the room at the other children, all engrossed in simple mechanical tasks, and I finally agreed with Dorothy that was challenging about fitting a square peg. What was challenging about fitting a square peg in a square hole? With her parents' permission, we stopped going there. Dorothy's problem everywhere, it seemed to me, was the non-expectation of everyone around her. I remember breakfast one morning when the other four children and their nurse had come into town. The others quickly finished their cereal, but Dorothy, dazzled by the activity around her, hadn't touched hers. Just spoon it into her, the nurse cried impatiently. She can eat by herself, I said. I guess she's just too interested in what's going on. Interested? Nurse gave a snort of contempt. She doesn't have any more idea what's happening than that canary. It's a shame she's allowed at the table. She just upsets the other children. It wasn't true. Dorothy's brothers and sisters, especially her older sister Martha, seemed genuinely happy to be with her. But even Martha had fallen into Nursie's habit of talking about her. Dorothy looks nice today. Dorothy's hair needs combing. Shall I do it? Rather than to, to, to her. It was so easy to assume that because she had no words, she had no understanding either. I understood the problem. I felt it most during our daily walk in Central Park. It was October, warmly sunny Indian summer, and Dorothy and I spent hours just walking. When the silence threatened to observe us both, I sang. I started with the hymns I remember from my own childhood back in England. Dorothy seemed to like the songs, for her feet marched in time to the music, and her head nodded rhythmically. We also brought sketch pads and crayons to the park. I was fascinated by some drawings I had found in Dorothy's room, a pattern of graceful waving lines drawn over and over again. What it meant, I had no idea, but it certainly wasn't scribble, as Nurse impatiently called it. And so we would sit on a park bench and sketch. I drew trees and strolling people and the loft skyline beyond the park. And Dorothy drew pigeons. I saw the very first time what they were, not perhaps outside of the pigeons like other people's draw, but the souls of the birds instead, the very way it feels to be a pigeon. Faster than my eyes could follow, her hand move, the wings in flight, the thrust for her the neck, and the self-important walk. 
The golden autumn passed too swiftly. Then a day dawned when the rain streamed down the tall windows and wind rattled the doors. So Dorothy sat on the piano bench beside me as I sang the songs I had sung in the park. I started off with one of Fenwick Holmes' Song of the Silence. Halfway through this joyous song, the miracle happened. One moment I was singing alone, the next Dorothy was singing with me, word for word and perfect tune. Electrified, I played on and on without a break, praying that the spell would not be broken. What a memory, how marvelous her mind had retained the words of song after song, far better than the average eight-year-old. I heard someone sob, and I turned and saw Dorothy's mother in the doorway, tears streaming down her cheek, unable to do anything but hold out her arms to her child. From that moment on, life was different for Dorothy. From singing, it was not far to speaking. All the words with music always came first. She made up songs for everything. Water, a washcloth, see what I mean? Knees that are dirty will soon be clean. At the plantarian, I can watch the stars. There is Venus, and here is Mars. Other changes took place in Dorothy. Her tensions disappeared along with the frustrations of a spirit bottled up. So did her wildness. The nurse never adjusted to the difference in her and took another job. As Dorothy continued to learn, I lengthened my stay just another month until she learned the alphabet. When I left, Dorothy was a poised, self-sufficient 13-year-old. Normal? Not if normal means average. All of us have strong points and weak points, and in Dorothy, everything is extreme. But this means extreme of knowing and expressing that most of us never reach. Those wavy lines, for instance, the ones she drew again and again? When she had enough words, she told me, that's what the wind looks like. Dorothy, your eyes so deep down, important things, your ears hear silent things. Your world is set to music. Oh, oh, if God left something out of you, it was only to fill it with himself. Story by Francis E. Leslie. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story. No wonder it's up on the front. Wonderful story. Don't you agree? Let's have a small prayer for all the children that are, and adults too, that are locked in their prisons of their minds. And there's the wise person. Speak to them like they're normal. Heavenly Father, may we speak to them the normal, encouraging them, and tell them jokes and stories, Father. Maybe even the ones that are in, in a coma. May we speak laughter and joy and believe. The greatest thing is to believe they're normal, to believe that all is well in the face of the enemy who's trying to keep them down. We pray for those children and those people locked in their minds and in their abilities. Be free, be set free, spirit, soul, and mind in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, our last story for today is Growing Roots. That's on page two. Our strength grows out of our weakness. Ralph Waldo Emerson. <laughs> 
Did you hear what I said? What did I say? Our strength grows out of our weakness. Boy, we must have a lot of strength, don't we? Here we go. When I was growing up, I had an old neighbor named Dr. Gibbs. He didn't look like any doctor I ever known. Every time I saw him, he wore denim overalls and a straw hat, the front brim of which was green, sunglass plastic. He smiled a lot. He's a smile that matched his hat, old and crinkly and well-worn. He never yelled at us for playing in his yard. I remember him as someone who was a lot nicer than circumstance warrant. When Dr. Gibbs wasn't saving lives, he was planting trees. His house sat on 10 acres, and his life goal was to make it a forest. The good doctor had some interesting theories concerning plant husbandry. He came from the no-pain, no-gain school of horticulture. He never watered his new trees, which flew in the face of conventional wisdom. Once I asked why, he said that watering plants spoil them, and that if you water them, each successive tree generation will grow weaker and weaker. So you have to make things rough for them and weed out the weenie trees early on. (laughs) He talked about how watering trees made for shallow roots and how trees that weren't watered had to grow deep roots in search of moisture. I took him to mean that deep roots were to be treasured. So he never watered his trees. He planted oak, and instead of watering it every morning, he beat it with a roll-up newspaper, smack, slap, pow. I asked him why he did that, and he said it was to get the tree's attention. Dr. Gibbs went to glory a couple of years after I left home. Every now and again, I walked by his house and looked at the trees that I watched him plant some 25 years ago. They're granite strong now, big and robust. Those trees wake up in the morning and beat their chest and drink their coffee black. (laughs) I planted a couple of trees a few years back, carried water to them for a solid summer, sprayed them, prayed over them, and the whole nine yards. Two years of coddling had resulted in trees that expected to be weighted on hand and foot. Whenever a cold wind blows in, they tremble and shadow their branches, sissy trees. Funny thing about those trees of Dr. Gibbs, adversity and deprivation seem to benefit them in ways comfort and ease could not. Every night before I go to bed, I check on my two sons. I stand over them and watch their little bodies, the rising and falling of life within. I often pray for them. Mostly I pray that their lives will be easy. Lord, spare them from hardship. But lately, I've been thinking that it's time to change my prayer. This change has to do with the inability of cold winds that hit us at the core. Excuse me, inedible. Inedible of cold winds that hit us at the core. I know my children are going to encounter hardship, and my praying they won't is naive. There's always a cold wind blowing somewhere, so I am changing my evening tide prayer because life is tough. 
whether we want it to be or not. Instead, I'm going to pray that my son's roots grow deep so they can draw strength from the hidden sources of the eternal God. Too many times we pray for ease, but that's a prayer seldom meant. What we need to do is pray for roots that reach deep into the eternal. So when the rains fall and the winds blow, we won't be swept asunder. By Philip Gully. Greetings, family. We're going to be reading Chicken Soup for the Soul today. Another story from page 48. For the Recovering Soul. This story is entitled, Friends of Bill W., Please Come to the Gate. Let's go ahead and open with a serenity prayer, please. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. James D. Davis was quoted by saying, once you learn to walk, crawling is out of the question. Sometimes in the early 1990s, I was treating a woman in an intensive outpatient chemical dependency group. Let's call her Grace. Grace was a flight attendant and had been suspended from her job with a major airline due to her untreated alcoholism. She had been stealing the little miniature little bottles, drinking in airport bars and uniform and so on. Her employer, realizing she needed treatment, sent her to us. After the eight-week program, I suggested to her it might be a good idea to solidify her foundation in recovery before returning to work, as she would be working in a high-risk environment, serving alcohol, being out of town, alone, etc. Grace did, however, to work shortly after completing outpatient treatment. One day, while she was departing from a plane at the end of a long day, a major craving for alcohol overpowered her. There she was in the LA International Airport pulling her roller bag behind her when this massive craving to drink came over her. She tried to just think it through or just forget about it, but it was way too powerful. It was so powerful in fact that she was resigned to the fact that she would just go drink. Grace thought, oh, the heck with it. I'll get another job, or maybe no one will find out anyway. But deep down inside, Grace did not want to drink. She truly had wanted to stay sober, but she was in trouble. On her way to the bar in the airport, Grace had a moment of sanity. She stopped, picked up the airport paging phone, and said, 
Would you please page friends of Bill W.? She paused quickly, looking around for an empty gate. To come to gate 12? Question mark. Within minutes, over the paging system in the LA International Airport, will friends of Bill W. please come to gate 12? Will friends of Bill W. please come to gate 12? Most people in recovery know that asking if you're a friend of Bill W. is an anonymous way to identify yourself as a member of AA. In less than five minutes, there were about 15 people at the gate from all over the world that brought tears of amazement, relief, and joy to grace. They had a little meeting there in that empty gate, total strangers prior to that moment. Grace discovered that two of those people had gone out of their boarding lines and missed their flights to answer their call for help. They had remembered what they had seen on many walls of meeting rooms. When anyone anywhere reaches out their hand for help, I want the hand of AA to be there, and for that, I am responsible. Grace did not drink that day. I would venture to guess that none of those people who came to gate 12 drank that day either. Instead, Grace had a moment of sanity, realized she could not do it on her own, took the action of asking for help, and received it immediately. This help is available to all of us if we want it, sincerely ask for it. It never fails. Jim C. Jr. All right, man, that's one of the best stories I've heard yet. That is awesome. Friends of Bill W. Our next story is called Around the Room. On my way to a meeting last night, I was listening to a talk show on the radio. The guest this night was a man who went through treatment some years ago, but was never touched by the power there. Or maybe he was and had to find a way to justify not going forward. At any rate, he apparently wrote a book slamming every conceivable aspect of traditional recovery. Surrender was weakness. Fellowship was a sham. Recovery was a cult. For him, unmanageability was the same as option for being a victim. He was above such crutches and saw himself as a hero who was willing to tell the truth. Anyone can make fun of anything. I felt sorry for him and wish he could come with me to the meeting I was going to. Actually, our situation isn't really a meeting. We meet at a church that has a, maybe eight or ten meetings going on at the same time. The meetings include AA as well as Al-Anon, Narcotics Anonymous, but also Gamblers Anonymous, GA, and Sex Addicts Anonymous, SAA, and several other flavors of recovery. We all finish about 10 and close together. Maybe as many as 100 people make a circle as big as is needed to include everyone and close with the Lord's Prayer. Wherever a person may stand in that circle, most of the faces of the others are within sight. For sure, anyone can make fun of anything, but I wish the man who felt had been harmed by traditional recovery could stand where I was and see the faces I looked at and marvel at every week. Stan, a young and built with the long, smooth muscles of a panther, he is a year clean of meth, but the, the coiled strength of the drug still lives in him. It runs an inch under his skin looking for a way to break out. But there he stands, hair bleached, snow white, tall and proud, neck legs tight against his neck, and with him are his two small children of five and eight. 
Stan went back to court to get custody of his children from their still drug-using mother. He was never parented, much so he has little experience to fall back on as to how daddy should act, but he tries. Every week he shows up with his kids, showing them all the love he has been taught in the fellowship. No parent has ever tried harder to give his or her children a firm foundation. Next to him, holding his hand, is older woman named Bonnie. She has adopted Stan and his children. She is her grandmother. Bonnie put it very simply, we need each other. It is what God wants. Further down the line stand two women, obviously friends, holding hands in a circle. At one time in both of their lives, they were exotic dancers. Who, kn who knows what else? They are both light wires full of fun love to joke around and yet there's a deep and a hardness in their eyes that only comes from having the worst side of humanity but there they stand hand in hand sober clean celebrating their long ride back into the light texas tom is a little further on he has been in and out of our meeting rooms for several years his last relapse was a bad one he actually lived at the crack house he used for the most part of four months. It's a miracle he is still alive, but even bigger miracle is that he has come back again. He is so full of guilt and shame. This night, he can barely hold his head up. But there he is, he included in a circle of love that ultimately is stronger than any addiction. Mary and Frank stand together. They always do. She is Elnon and Frank is AA. Both have been in the fellowship for over 20 years. They have a hell of a story, but for so many years, if you saw them on the street, they would appear the most normal, ordinary, middle-class, suburban couple. They have two biological sons and dozen of others they have adopted over the years. Not legally, but in a spiritual sense. Their doors is always open. Members of the fellowship who have no other place to go in holy days are always packed around their table. They are the best of good people. I spy Art across the room. He is a giant of a man who says he spent nearly all of his adult life in prison. He first got sober in prison and now three years later is still clean through the love of the fellowship and his God. He says he fears nothing on the face of this earth. Having gone through what he said has, no one doubts it. But tonight he shared that he just found out he has a 21-year-old son and has decided he would try to make contact with the young man. That scares him. He says his legs feel like jelly, but there he stands in the circle, clean, sober, and facing the hardest fight of his life. On and on the circle goes. Cat who killed a man while driving under the influence and did four years in prison now clean and giving back. John, 17 years clean, who started a business for the sole purpose of giving work to people no one will ever trust. Bobby and his wife, Root, with the old scar of a cutter crawling up his arm, who come each week with their little daughter, Charity. The young and the old, conservatives and young men with shaved heads and the tattoo and those who would never think of such a thing. The single and the married and many who once were some financially successful and some who steal toilet paper from McDonald's. An endless variety, but with a 24-karat com commonality. They are all chemical-free and making something beautiful of their lives. 
I remember the man on the talk show driving home and thought, if this is a cult, may we all be so lucky to belong. By Ernie Larson. Beautiful, beautiful story, Ernie. Thank you for writing that in. Our next story is called The Miracle in the Making. The divine guidance often comes when the horizon is the blackest. From Gandhi. It's like a bad dream, a surprise party without the cake and minus the merriment. For weeks you've been planning to save the life of someone you love. At times it feels more like plotting, sneaking out to meetings you can't talk about, relieving old hurts to get them down on paper just right, wondering how you'll ever get him there, dreading the look in his face. You had the same look on your face many times through the years because you love an alcoholic who couldn't seek help. Today you're doing it for him. You held him close all night as if to reassure him of your love and shield him from the pain. You packed for him without his knowing, sneaking his hairbrush and his favorite slippers into a bag that is waiting in a friend's car. You kiss him goodbye like this way was any other day, wondering if he would ever again say, I love you back. And now, half hour before his arrival, you sit at the intervention specialist's office with your sweetheart's two children and two colleagues who are also his good friends. His company personnel manager is bringing him here on the pretext of some meeting important to the boss. Your damp palms smush the carefully edited script you hold, someone cracks a nervous little joke, and you laugh softly before returning to your silent prayers. At last, at last, yet too soon, you hear the familiar voice and footsteps coming down the hall. The door opens and his voice breaks off, questioning in his eyes as he scans the room. Confusion and fear, the very look you dreaded, erode his half-smile, and you struggle to look loving yet firm. The intervention has begun. What's going on here is the first of his many questions. The intervention specialist introduces himself and explains how he helps families and industries to help other people. The suspicion and confusion grow. Alcohol is not even mentioned until the first friend recalls a past drinking incident. The letter from his boss who is out of town tells him what a valuable employee he is, that he has the firm's support in getting well. He rolls his eyes and snorts. But then the woman he loves and his children recite their rehearsal speeches about the drunkenness and the pain it has caused them. Please get help, they urge. Today there is no more denial. The drinker wipes away his tears. And then your part is done. The intervention specialists take over, negotiating him into treatment by urging him to Join your friends and family to help you to get well. I know the thing you've done are not the decent men you really are. The drinker volunteers to go look at the treatment center after the specialist dispels some myths, no bars, no shock treatments, no forced illness. There's time set aside. Will he go now just to look? Perhaps check in later this week for just 10 days to decide whether or not he has a problem and can benefit from treatment. The specialist congratulates the man for his commitment and you do too. 
He embraces it half-hearted and, we and weary, but his children are swallowed up in the big man's arms for a teary farewell. You get the high sign to move out quickly so they can drive to the treatment center. He won't need the hidden suitcase, at least not yet. But when the man does check in at the end of the week, it's with a suitcase he's packed himself. Fear of the unknown fills his eyes, but this is his decision. In the next mail, the people who care enough to put their friendship on the line receive notes from the man who was forced to recognize that he had a disease. And several days later, when you drop by the treatment center to pick up his dirty laundry, the attached note is the best you ever know received. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. I'm Ted, and I'm an alcoholic. The Nightmare is Over from Jan Michelle. There's an intervention story. And with that, thank you very much for listening. God bless you. And give them heaven, family. Welcome to today's podcast of reading the AA Big Book. We're going to be reading starting with page 24, so please get your book out. We're going to start off with the uh, set-aside prayer. Lord, help me to set aside everything I think I know about you, everything I think I know about me, everything I think I know about others, and everything I think I know about my own recovery. For a new, fresh experience in you, Lord, for a new experience in myself and a new experience in my fellow man and a much needed experience in my recovery. Amen. Let's, okay, serenity prayer, please. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Amen. Starting at page 24, Rick, would you please take us off? Back with most alcoholics, we have reason to get obscured and have lost the power of choice drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into the consciousness and the significant force of memory of a suffering and humiliation even a week or a month ago. We are without defenses for strength. The almost certain consequences follow. <clears throat> Taking even a glass of beer not crowd, the mind, crowd our mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazily and rapidly spread, and they hold certain ideas that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There's a complete failure to this kind of defense. Keeps one from putting his hands on a hot stove. The alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how, or perhaps he doesn't think at all. How often has some of us begun to drink in this nonchalant way, and after the third or fourth, pounded on the bar and said to ourselves, for God's sake, how did I ever get started again? Only to have that thought supplanted by, well, I'll stop with the sixth drink, or what's the use anyhow? When this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid, and unless locked up, may die or go permanently insane. These stark and ugly facts have been confirmed by legions of alcoholics 
throughout history. But for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop, but cannot. Lewis delusion most none of us like the self-searching delivery of our pride and confessions of our shortcomings in the process requires for a successful consultation. Uh, but we had we had saw that it really worked for others and we had to come to believe in the hopeless and fertility of life as we've been living it. When therefore we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there, had been, there was nothing left for us to do but pick up a simple kit of spiritual tools, lay our feet, and found much of heaven and been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence which we have not even dreamed. The great fact is this, <coughs> is this in and nothing less, that we've had a deep, effective spiritual experience in which we revolutionized whole attitudes towards life, towards our fellows, and towards God's universe. The, the central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and our lives, which is the miraculous. He has commenced and accomplished those things for us, which... Which we, oh God, I lost my place. Yeah, we got it, which we could never do by ourselves. If you are oh, seriously, yeah, never do by ourselves. Yeah, man. If you are seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle of the road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible, and if we had passed into a region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. This we did because we honestly wanted to and were willing to make the effort. Page sixty-two, please. Let's go ahead. And, I'm going to start. I'm going to start over here, and this this is the how and the why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter. In this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father. We are his children. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new triumphant arch through which we passed through freedom. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we get close to him and perform his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. Uh, we are now in step three. Many of us said to our maker, I offer myself to thee, do with me and do with, do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me from the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties and that uh, victory over them and bear witness to those who I would have helped with thy power thy love thy way of life. May I do thy will always. We thought well before taking this step, making sure that we were ready to, that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. All right, turn to page 76, please, where it says, when ready, when ready, we say something like this. 
my creator. I am now willing that he should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go off from here to do your bidding. Amen. We have then completed step seven. Page 86, please. On, on awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking to be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance, for after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is clear of wrong motives. Okay? Okay. In thinking about our day, we base the decisions we made, we may not be able to determine which course to take. Here's what we ask God for inspiration and two of thought decision we were allowed to take it easy. We don't show. We're often surprised how right the answers come after we try this for a while. What used to be the hunch of occasional inspiration gradually becomes more a part of the mind. Still being an experience that we have just made conscious contact with God, it is not probable that we are going to be inspired at all times. We might pay for the presumption of all sorts of obscure actions and ideas. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, will be more and more on the plane of inspiration will come to rely upon it. We usually conclude the period of meditation with a prayer that we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be, that we be given whatever we need to take care of such problems. We ask especially for freedom from self-will and are careful to make no requests for ourselves only. We may ask for ourselves, however, if others will be helped. We are careful never to pray for our own selfish ends. Many of us have wasted a lot of time doing that, and it doesn't work, okay? If circumstances warrant, we ask our wives and friends to join us on morning meditation. We belong to a religious domination which requires having a morning devotion. We attend that also. If not members of religious bodies, we sometimes select the principles that we've been discussing. You already read that one? No. Go ahead. You're on. Keep going. There are many helpful books also suggest may be be obtained by one's priest, minister, or rabbi. Be quick to see where religious people are right. Make sure we use what they have to offer. Keep going. Yeah, keep going. And through the day, we pause with an agitator of doubtful. We ask the right for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves we're no longer running the show. Uh, how we say to ourselves that many times we say that will be done. We are in much less, less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self pity, or foolish decisions. We become more and more efficient. We do not tire our souls and we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to raise our lives to ourselves. Amen. Uh, it works. It really does. Turn to page 100, please. It says, Both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. Turn to page 83. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we're halfway through. 
We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace no matter how far down the scale we have gone. We will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in ourselves. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations we used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Page 85, please. It's easy to live for our spiritual programs and rest of our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do so for alcohols and settle full. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is daily reprieve of constant maintenance of a spiritual condition, which every day is a day we must carry out that vision of God's will into our all our activities. How may I best serve thee that I will that mine be done? <clears throat> These thoughts must go with us constantly, and we can exercise uh, our willpower along the line. All we wish is proper use of will. Much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, direction from Him who has all knowledge and power. If we are careful, we are carefully we follow directions. We have begun to sense the flow of His Spirit into us, and we come to some extent have become God conscious and we've begun to believe and develop a vital success of what we must go for. This means more action. Page 43, please. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. Except in a few rare cases, Neither he nor any other human, human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. The end. Amen. Amen. You know, uh, on this thing, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense. You know, I used to put my faith and, and say, I know, I know. I'm not going to drink no more. I know, I know. I know I messed up my... I kept saying I know to others, and I kept saying I know to myself, but I, my ex, all, all of us in the 12-step program and any kind of program, we all come in agreement that our mental faith and hope in ourselves or faith in ourselves failed us, and we had no mental defense against the first anything, you know, except in a few rare cases, but uh, we had it... Uh, Neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. That is an amazing, amazing statement there that we get all our strength from a higher power. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a higher power uh, telling us that this is the way to go, you know, to exercise these, these pick up these words in our... <laughs> Amen. Well, have a great day, young man. Did you? Uh, would you like to say anything about today's reading? Anything you got? No, just you know, it's good to be back. It's good to be out of that COVID state. You know. Yes. Yes. Amen. No, you don't, 
you don't you don't uh, you don't do this anymore on Fridays. You do a uh, pancake thing. Yeah, I do. I do pancakes on Friday. I just have to figure out to uh, do them before my seven a.m. That's all. You gonna do it before seven a.m. or or? You know, I'll I'll get it done. I don't make that much of a big deal. I don't make that much anymore. I just make a few little bit, and I'm gonna call it a, a pancake potluck. So I don't have to make the bacon, the sausages, and uh, bring all that stuff. You know, it's just a lot of work. I'm just going to take one thing. I'm just going to, like Arnold Schwarzenegger says, do exercise right on one thing instead of trying to do a lot of them badly. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to perfect my pancakes and uh, uh, so I can, and maybe you can give me some pointers on how to, I make the best pancakes. And what I did is I, I did them with, uh, with, with, Coconut oil. Oh yeah. What gives it a sweet taste like McDonald's yeah, pancake? Yeah, yeah. Huh. So you know, so uh, yeah, on Fridays we'll be uh, doing it again, and I'm giving the word out, and other people will bring in their pancakes. <laughs> we'll have a pancake war. See who makes the best pancakes or who who makes the big stuff. So anyway, think about it. And I'll give you the address. You come down someday. We have then after that we have a meeting at nine o'clock, and uh, and then from there, if you come on Uber or whatever, I can always give you a ride home. All right, that sounds good. All right, Senor. Take care. God bless you all. Thank you for coming in. Bye. Bye. Bye.